Thomas Edison called him one of the greatest businessmen in the USA. He was a self-made mogul who amassed enormous wealth while bringing electricity and more to the masses and got the Civic Opera House in Chicago built before his empire came crashing down. This is the story of Samuel Insull, the world's greatest failure. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, just know that I did not come up with the world's greatest failure thing. That was actually a headline in a newspaper for an article published six years before Samuel Insull's death. Reading that had to sting. But wait, who was Samuel Insull? What was his connection to Chicago? And why does he write an entire episode? There is plenty to cover, but just know I had to compress a lot of this story to fit into the usual runtime for this podcast. If you'd like to do a deep dive into this story, I highly recommend local author John Wasik's book, The Merchant of Power, Sam Insult, Thomas Edison, and the Creation of the Modern Metropolis. There is a link in the show's notes. Samuel Insull was born in London in 1859, leaving school at 14 to begin working. After a short run at the London branch of Thomas Edison's phone company, he learned of an opening with Edison's company in the U.S. and emigrated to the United States. In February of 1881, 21-year-old Insull began working for 34-year-old Thomas Edison as his personal secretary in New York. Edison, a man who rarely slept and was always on the go, seemed impressed with his new English assistant and soon gave him more responsibilities, including helping Edison come up with a way to finance all of his business plans. Insult proved so invaluable to Edison that by the end of the first year, Edison gave Insult nearly $15,000 in securities, that's a pretty big amount in today's money, and within two years, Insult was secretary of nearly all of Edison's companies. Working under Edison, Samuel Insull got to see firsthand the development of power in cities in Insull. Edison got a trusted assistant with a keen eye for the world of Edison's finances. Although lacking formal training, Insull was quick to correctly point out where Edison's companies were losing money, all the while learning about the technical details of the operations. With Sammy, as Edison called him, by his side, Edison's businesses began to grow as the need for light and power did as well. There were setbacks along the way as Edison fought the current war, as it's known, against Westinghouse, Tesla, and others, eventually being forced out of his own company as financing dried up. In February of 1892, after corporate consolidations headed by J.P. Morgan, the General Electric Company was born. Sam Insull, the only Edison man still part of the equation, was named second vice president. Perhaps disappointed at not being named president, Insull felt a change was in order, and that change would occur in Chicago. As president of Chicago Edison, Insull was essentially starting over. The company was undercapitalized, barely showing profits, and at a time when Chicago had more than 45 
electric companies operating. Uh, This, by the way, was in addition to the many buildings that ran their own power dynamos in their own basements. Chicago Edison really did not stand out. The company's headquarters at 120 West Adams was their office building, power plant, and coal bin. The territory covered was 56 square blocks of the loop in downtown Chicago, which was surrounded by train tracks. Insel's starting pay was $12,000 per year, less than half of what he was making in New York, according to the 1987 book A Spirit Capable, The Story of Commonwealth Edison by John Hogan. Insel's agreement to work for Chicago Edison included two conditions. The directors, not Insel, would be responsible for making sure there was sufficient working capital for the company, It would seem Insel was tired of coming up with the cash for Edison all those years. The second, $250,000 in new stock would be issued, all of it sold to Insel, which would finance the construction of a new plant. And for you listeners that enjoy connecting the pieces of Chicago's history as much as I do, Insel borrowed the entire amount for the stocks from Marshall Field. All about who you know, even then. One of the first things Insel reportedly noticed when he came to Chicago was the hodgepodge of transportation options. There were horse-drawn omnibus carts, which had been around since the late 1850s. There were steam-driven cable cars and electric trolleys. Insel had the idea that everything could be unified by making everything electric. And, of course, he would be the one to supply the electricity. A year after Insel's arrival in the city, Chicago's host to the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893. For all of the amazing presentations, arguably the most impressive were those of electricity. When President Grover Cleveland kicked off the World's Fair, he did so by pushing a button that lit 100,000 light bulbs, powered by George Westinghouse's company. The promise of homes and buildings being lit using Edison bulbs and a constant supply of electricity, was coming to fruition. Also of note for Samuel Insull in 1893, he acquired rival Chicago Arc Light and Power Company, yet another piece in his growing empire. Even with this second company under his control, Samuel Insull knew he would need a larger operation to supply power to the rapidly growing city. During a much-needed vacation, Samuel Insull traveled back to England, spending time in the resort town of Brighton. It was here he noticed that the usage of electricity was metered, something not done in the States. Edison's early system of power charged by the light bulb, which was great for large companies like newspapers who could basically use all the electricity they wanted, but not so great for power companies finding it difficult to remain profitable. Returning to the States, Insel set about getting meters installed to gauge electricity use to create a fairer system. He also wanted to create larger, more powerful, and more efficient power plants instead of the smaller ones scattered around the city. In May of 1899, the Illinois Electric Vehicle Transportation Company was organized with $25 million in capital, that's a little more than $800 million in today's money. Samuel Insel was named president. The company's goal was to provide electric cabs to the city, eliminating horse-drawn omnibuses and utilizing the growing electricity offerings. Yes, 
Electric cars were a thing in the late 1800s using an electric storage battery, which of course meant more need for electricity. And as exciting as all that was, Samuel Insull finally settled down when he married an actress given named Margaret Anna Bird, who went by the stage name Gladys Wallace, in May of 1899. She was some 13 years his junior, and one year later she gave birth to their son, Samuel Jr., Uh, Somewhat off topic, my friend John Lyons knows how much I enjoy quotes from people who loudly make proclamations that wind up being terribly wrong. When the Secretary of Agriculture, James Wilson, came to Chicago in 1901 to open the Second International Livestock Exposition, he said to the cheering crowd, quote, The automobile will never supplant the good old horse. The man who rides a bicycle never owned a horse. The gallant animal will be with us throughout the ages. End quote. Only time will tell whether Wilson was right. After 17 months, during which 109 electric cabs were in operation on Chicago streets, the Illinois Electric Transportation Company's board of directors voted to liquidate the company and sell all assets, saying that the expenses were too high and they could not turn a profit. More specifically, the roads in Chicago, often full of ruts and uneven rotten pavement, caused too much damage to the autos, requiring expensive repairs. As I like to say, history repeats. Regardless of the electric car failure, Insel's empire continued to grow, and by 1907, all of Chicago's power was being supplied by Insel's merged companies, now going by the name Commonwealth Edison Company. Two years later, Insel was one of the leading financial underwriters of the planning efforts that resulted in Daniel Burnham's 1909 Plan of Chicago. Insel was rubbing elbows with all the right people in the city. In 1912, Insel founded Middle West Utilities, which covered numerous states. By 1920, the Middle West Utilities Group supplied electricity, gas, and ice to 5,300 towns in the Midwest. When Insel acquired the bankrupt Chicago and Milwaukee Electric Railroad in 1916, he renamed it the Chicago North Shore and Milwaukee Railroad, or North Shore Line. As owning the power plants and power lines in the area gave him rights of way, he was able to negotiate track rights into northern suburbs like Evanston. The electric interurban trains connected Chicago with three states. The system could take passengers to South Haven, Michigan, South Bend, Indiana, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and even to Janesville, Wisconsin. For those more local, lines ran out to Aurora, Joliet, and Rockford. As new train tracks were built in these formerly remote locales, areas that had been farmland became attractive to builders. With newly available power and transportation, people could live farther from the city and still commute if needed. This, of course, meant more power. With his standing among those in power, no pun intended, growing, Sam Insel was elected president of People's Gas which, after being neglected during World War I, was in pretty horrible shape. Insel secured new financing and built a new manufacturing plant, and within two years, People's Gas was once again profitable. 
1928, an ex-Baptist minister turned financier from Cleveland named Cyrus Eaton began buying up large blocks of common stock of ComEd, Midwest Utilities, and People's Gas. Totally normal in most situations, but when the guy at the top of those companies was a control freak, as was Insul, alarm bells began to ring. Insul reacted by essentially creating a holding company called Insul Utility Investments, in which he bought up large amounts of shares of his electric and gas companies. He, his brother Martin, and his son were the main shareholders. When Eaton offered to sell back 85,000 shares of Commonwealth Edison, 60,000 shares of People's Gas, and 13,000 shares of Public Service Company at an inflated $400 per share, Insul took the bait. Keep in mind, at the time, ComEd shares were selling for $328 each, People's Gas, $318, and Public Service Company at $329. So concerned was Insul about losing control of his companies, essentially to a Canadian-born Ohioan, that he was willing to pay far over market price. Insul later tried to renegotiate, which he was kind of able to do, but either way, borrowed more money he didn't have to prop up all of these efforts. October 1929, the Wall Street stock market crash occurs. Eleven days later, the Civic Opera Building, at a cost of $20 million, opens at 20 North Wacker Drive, financed by Insul, who was named president of the Chicago Civic Opera Company. Up until then, the Civic Opera had performed at the Auditorium Theater, but Insul, a patron of the arts, thought the Civic Opera should have their own building. The Art Deco building, which features a 45-story office tower and two 22-story wings, was designed by the architecture firm Graham Anderson Probst & White, good name for a 1970s prog rock band, and is still in use today. The building takes up a city block bounded by Wacker, Madison, Washington, and the river, and has the appearance of a ginormous chair, which explains its nickname, Insul's Throne. Uh, For any of my Hoosier listeners, the limestone used for the exterior of the building was brought in from Bedford, Indiana. Within the Civic Opera building is the Civic Opera House, which currently seats 3,563, making it the second largest opera auditorium in the U.S. It now serves as the permanent home for the Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean-American community awaits. Opening night of the Civic Opera in November of 1929 sounds like it was the place to be. Cars drop off the Chicago elite dressed in their finest, while the estimated 2,000 sightseers looking to see the wealthy muckety-mucks line the sidewalks. 
Eight Chicago police detective squads were dispatched and, quote, took every precaution to safeguard the fortune in jewelry and fur quotes, end quote, worn by the crowd. Squad cars were positioned around the city as a safeguard against highwaymen. These were thieves who would force cars off the road and then rob the occupants. Performed that night was Verdi's Aida, but before the lights dimmed at 8.15 p.m. and the star-spangled banner welcomed the crowd, well-heeled guests were greeted in the lobby by the man who made it all happen, Samuel Insull. The next day, the Chicago Tribune ran a more-than-half-page recap of who sat where and what they were wearing. Although he weathered the initial stock market crash, Samuel Insull was not able to make it through the Great Depression unscathed. In 1929, shares in Insull Utility Investments Company hit $160. That's roughly $2,500 per share in 2021 money. By 1932, those same shares dropped to 12 and a half cents, about 250 today. Auditors looking into Insol's operations reported Insol Utility Investments owed nine times as much as it owned. It had roughly $27.5 million in assets and 253, let's round up, $254 million in liabilities. It's a deficit of $225 million. But how could this be, you ask? The auditor's balance sheet showed Insol's investment trust paid close to $238 million for securities, which at then current prices had a market value of about $30.5 million. That's a difference of more than $207 million. Now, I'm not good at math, but even I went, oh boy, when I read this. If I understand things correctly, Insol had created a house of cards that eventually toppled around him. The bigger problem, he had 600,000 people who invested with him, many of them employees of the utility companies Insul headed. Those who believed in all the promises of potential wealth lost all of their money. According to a 1932 article in the Vancouver Sun, it took Samuel Insul 50 years to build his empire and about the same number of days for it all to fall apart. At its peak, that empire was worth $4 billion, more than $63 billion in today's money. When Insul resigned as chairman of the Commonwealth Edison Company, the People's Gas, Light, and Coke Company, and the Public Service Company of Northern Illinois, there were three of the largest utilities operating in the world. One key reason Insul was forced out, it was discovered his brother Martin had been using company funds to cover his personal stock margin accounts. Through dummy accounts, Martin funneled $268,000 to cover his debts with Samuel's signature on some of those checks. Samuel Insul also resigned from 65 chairmanships, 85 directorates, and 11 presidencies. It was reported he spent three hours at his desk, signing letters of resignation. With 600,000 investors, those are power plant workers, truck drivers, secretaries, bank workers, having lost a combined $750 million, nearly $15 billion in today's money, the government was taking a hard look at what they felt amounted to fraud. 
feeling the authorities bearing down on him and the scorn of those who believed in him and lost all their money, Sam Insull and his wife quietly left town and headed to Canada following Martin Insull's lead from a few weeks before. From Quebec City, they boarded the Empress of Britain, destination Cherbourg, France, where they stayed for some time before hearing they would be arrested and brought back to stand trial in the U.S. Sam and Gladys Insull headed to Greece, where extradition rules did not apply. Back in Chicago and the U.S., people and authorities were outraged. President Herbert Hoover, failing to get the economy back on its feet, signed the extradition order for Insull, now under indictment for embezzlement and larceny, under a new treaty with Greece. Franklin Delano Roosevelt used Insull's name in fiery campaign speeches about how utilities had been gouging consumers for years. On October 2nd, 1934, after two years plus of preparations, the U.S. government put Samuel Insull, Samuel Insull Jr., and 15 of their associates on trial for using the postal system to defraud investors. 200 witnesses were called and 2 million words of testimony were taken during the 54-day-long trial. And because Chicago, the jury deliberated for just over two hours before returning with a verdict of not guilty. Of the two tons of government evidence available, the jury asked to see just three items. Letters between Insul officials and the public accounting firm Arthur Young and Company as to whether stock dividends received by Insul's Corporation Securities Company should be listed at their market value as income of corporation securities. The government contended this form of bookkeeping was evidence of fraudulent intent, but the jury decided it was not. Two more trials brought two more acquittals, but Insul was a broken man, having gone from having a fortune worth roughly $2.4 billion in today's money to a small fraction of that, with debts he would never be able to repay. When Insul died on July 16, 1938, he was 78 years old and had been living in exile overseas. Although a far cry from his richest days, Insul was still collecting a $21,000 a year pension from the companies over which he used to preside. That's a little more than $400,000 in today's money. That's the corporate golden parachute 1930s style. Insul and his wife traveled to Paris to take in the Bastille Day celebration. While his wife was shopping, Insul went into a subway station on his way to lunch. At the Place de la Concorde station, with a subway ticket in his hand, his heart stopped. He died alone with 84 cents in his pocket, his wallet missing and likely stolen while he took his last breath. It seems critics and newspaper writers didn't know how to acknowledge Insul's passing. Harold G. Hoffman, a writer for the Morning Post in Camden, New Jersey, wrote this. Sam Insul was a genius who overplayed his hand, an optimist who would not admit the need for caution lest that be pessimism. He dared greatly, won greatly, and lost greatly. Sam Insul a failure? I wonder. Thanks for listening to today's episode about Samuel Insull, the world's greatest failure, 
As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.